Welcome to Routes and Revenue, a podcast that analyzes business plays from the gridiron. I'm your host, Jackson Curtis, and I'm excited to dive into two very popular topics that everyone seems to have an opinion about. So today we're talking about two things, the transfer portal and NIL collectives. As someone that works in the athlete representation space, both of these topics get brought up a lot, and they play a really big role in the lives of student-athletes, especially those that play college football. The transfer portal started in 2018 and was created for compliance administrators to better track and organize the transfer process. It was also created to empower student-athletes. You know, before the transfer portal rules, if you wanted to transfer, it was a much longer process and a lot of times you had to sit out for an entire year before you could play again. You know, now the transfer portal gives more freedom to student-athletes, which is great. Now that we're in 2024, the transfer portal for college football has essentially turned into a crazy free agency period. There are two windows in which a college football player can enter the transfer portal. The first window is December 4th, 2023, and then it ends on January 2nd, 2024. Obviously that window has passed, but the second window is in the spring, and it's shorter. It's April 15th to April 30th of 2024. Now, despite these two windows, when college coaches are moving around, accepting new jobs, or retiring, it allows for more exceptions within the transfer portal rules. So when Nick Saban left Alabama, it happened on January 10th. The transfer portal window had already closed, but that didn't mean Crimson Tide players couldn't enter the portal, because there's actually an NCAA rule that allows players to put their name in the portal up to 30 days after the coach leaves. So they'll have actually until February 9th to make their decision. Now what about Kalen DeBoer when he left Washington? His Washington players could enter the portal. What about Jed Fish when he left Arizona? His Arizona players could enter the portal. You get the point. When a coach leaves, more portals can open, and the recruiting process starts all over again. This new era of college football has really taught coaches that having a good recruiting class is such a small piece of the pie. The biggest thing that they have to do is retain their talent throughout the year. You know, with all this movement from coaches going to other top programs, they need to make sure that their players are bought in. You know, not every coach is good at recruiting. So these schools are understanding that if a coach can't retain and keep a good recruiting class at their school, they're not going to last because in two years, it's going to be a completely different program. And on top of all this, when a player enters the portal, they're talking with NIL collectives that are linked to that school. When a student-athlete transfers, remember, it's their decision, and every situation is unique. Now, I understand the side where the portal can cause laziness and really mess up the decision-making of these young athletes, but there are a lot of athletes that put their names at the portal thinking there's an opportunity for them, only to find out that there isn't. They're essentially stuck in the portal, and their previous program has already replaced them or won't let them come back. So in my mind, student-athletes need to be really deliberate in their decision when entering the portal, and understand that there is risk involved with jumping in the portal. On the flip side, there can be a lot of benefits for a student-athlete to enter the portal. You might have a chance to play in a better conference, or maybe it's to get developed by a top coaching staff. Now, some student-athletes decide on a school that will help them increase their draft stock. And on top of that, there are opportunities to increase your income with NIL collectives. I'm going to talk about this more when I bring up NIL collectives, 
But at the end of the day, when it comes to a transfer portal decision, it's a business decision. We shouldn't fault athletes for making a business decision that will set them up for their future. And if you listen to my last episode about the college football coaching carousel and all the different movement, we need to hold these coaches to the same standard we hold student athletes to. They move around. They get paid double and triple their salary at a different program. They leave these schools high and dry. It's kind of funny to me when you hear fans and people talk about the lack of loyalty with student athletes, especially when they go enter the transfer portal. Well, there's a lack of loyalty with coaches across the entire nation. All of these coaches are trying to up their resume. The same goes with athletes. They're trying to showcase their skills and abilities maybe on a bigger level, a national stage. How do they do that? By transferring. These coaches are doing all the same things. In 2022, there was 22 coaching changes. Okay, just to put it into perspective, there's 134 college football programs. So 22 of them, they had changes. Now in 2023, there was 27. So coaches are moving around. That's about 20% of change in just one season. I would imagine in 2024, there's going to be similar, if not more, changes in coaches. Now, going back to what I said previously about if a player transfers, sometimes they transfer to increase their NFL draft stock. One of those players was Tez Walker, wide receiver for the University of North Carolina. Before he came to UNC, he was playing in the MAC conference at Kent State. Now, for Tez, the situation wasn't super simple, you could say. When he got there, the NCAA didn't reinstate him, so he couldn't start the season playing for the Tar Heels. He only ended up playing eight games during the college football season. But in those eight games, he produced great numbers and increased his draft stock. Another example is Heisman quarterback Jaden Daniels from LSU. He spent three years at Arizona State. He then transfers to LSU. He had a decent first year at LSU, but during his senior year, he puts up video game numbers. And as you know, he won the Heisman. Something that people don't really realize is that the SEC is built way different than other conferences. You're going up against NFL caliber talent every week. Not just at games, but at practice. And those are just the facts. These guys are going to be bigger and highly rated versus other conferences. Now, I'm not saying the Big Ten and the Big 12 don't have NFL talent, because they do. But the SEC has the most draft picks every single year in the NFL. Now let's head to our Q&A section, which, once again, I appreciate all the questions that are getting sent in. If you don't know what to do with the questions, head over to the Instagram, at Routes and Revenue, Hit the link in bio. Today's question is from Steph out of Washington, D.C. He asked, as a lawyer that wants to work in the business space advising athletes on their business ventures, what do you think is the best way to network and promote yourself amongst athletes if you haven't done business work with athletes thus far? This is a great question. And the first thing I want to say is you need to form a personal relationship with the athlete. And you might be thinking, well, duh. Of course you have to do that. Well, a lot of people that want to work with players skip that step. And once you skip that step and you try to sell the athlete on why you should be working with them, things get messy and typically things don't work out. A simple way to get to know an athlete is to attend a game and at the end of the game, introduce yourself. Obviously, on the college or high school level, this is much easier. At a professional level, it's going to be extremely hard unless you have media credentials. But starting out, and if you have that long-term vision of working with athletes, 
You need to get in early and build that relationship. Another way to get involved with athletes is get to know their circle. Maybe get to know their agent, their publicist, their financial advisor. And as you get to know them, you can ask for an introduction. But that doesn't always mean you're going to get an introduction. So at the end of the day, more conversations with people, more action, more just getting out there and showing your face is going to be beneficial for you in the long term. Another thing you can do is get to know retired athletes. A lot of people kind of forget this step because all they focus on are the current athletes, the ones that are important. But the retired athletes have connections and are in circles with players that you probably want to get to know. The last thing I want to say is to develop a strong social media presence. Now, everyone talks about creating a personal brand, but if you really want to stand out and work with high-profile clients, such as athletes, you need to put your name out there You need to showcase what you can do on the social media. So if you're worried about, I don't know how I'm going to sound, this might be weird, but getting on social media is going to provide more opportunities and put you in rooms with athletes and people that want to be involved with you. Now let's dive into NIL collectives because it's really hard to talk about NIL without mentioning collectives. First and foremost, NIL collectives are independent organizations that facilitate NIL opportunities for student-athletes. Most collectives that you see, whether it's in the news or with these top schools, are led by donors and alumni. Now, these collectives have kind of been subject to a lot of controversy because they're not the university, but they act to benefit the student-athletes at the school they are helping. So the universities using NIL collectives are paying collectives, and the collectives are providing a service to the university by helping their athletes. What's interesting is that there's over 200 NIL collectives, and really if you want to compete at any level of college football, you need to have an NIL collective set up. This isn't some crazy theory. When a student athlete is entering the transfer portal, going back to what I said previously, some of the questions that they ask is, well, how is the NIL collective? How much money would I be getting if I transfer to the school? At the end of the day, it's in the money. This is what college football is now about. Whether you like it or not, NIL collectives are not going to go anywhere either. A lot of these college football programs that waited until recently to set up their NIL collective are now kind of behind the eight ball. These other programs already had a collective and it's been years. So I think it's really interesting to kind of see the shift that we're seeing in college football, but especially with NIL collectives because it's such a controversial topic. What's been really interesting to watch when it comes to NIL collectives is as these organizations have formed throughout the years, some of these organizations thought they could file as nonprofits, which means they could get tax-exempt status. Other ones have been for-profit, which means they're essentially just businesses, they're LLCs. But the IRS in June of 2023 released statements and said, hey, look, If you're going to pay your student-athletes, that's not a charitable purpose. Or look, if you're going to pay your student-athletes and they're going to do charity work on the side, that's also not a charity. So I think it's really interesting what we're going to see with these NIL collectives is how are they going to classify themselves? And with these donors that are giving money to essentially these funds or NIL collectives, are they going to get tax write-offs or not? There's obviously going to be more questions that come up in terms of NIL collectives. 
Are they going to continue operating independently? Or are they eventually just going to become part of the university? Most people think they should just be part of the university anyway because it kind of looks like that from the outside. One interesting thing I saw recently with NIL collectives is that a former Ohio State student-athlete, C.J. Stroud, who's now the quarterback for the Houston Texans, donated between fifty dollars and $100,000 of his own money to the Ohio State Collective. Now, for some, this is just like, cool, a professional athlete giving back to his program. How nice. But I think it's interesting to think about. You know, are more student-athletes that are now playing pro, are they going to give back to these schools? Or is it just going to be a constant stream of who can raise the most money? Who can get the most donors to get involved? You know, what kind of top alumni can we reach out to to increase our collective fund? That's going to wrap up the episode for today. Really appreciate all those that are tuning in. Once again, this is Routes and Revenue where we analyze business topics in the sports world. Excited to keep this podcast going. Be sure to tune in every Friday and we'll see you next week.